Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today I'm joined by Dr. Curtis Kelly, Professor of English, the Faculty of Business and Commerce at Kansai University. Dr. Kelly, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing quite well. I, I appreciate your promotion on your, your Facebook page. I, I see you have over 1,500 friends. Do you have to, is that like pay, pay per person or are those all real people? <laughs> <laughs> Those are, I think they're real people, and it probably comes from just traveling all over Asia doing presentations. Well, I, and then places like the Philippines where everybody wants to be your friend. Oh, that kind of what happens. Well, you, you, you gave us a nice promotion. You said, How many times do you get to listen to what your peers are doing in their research? Not the most famous people, but your peers. A little bit of an issue there. I would say that you are quite famous. Uh, no, I don't know. No, <laughs> I would say you're you're at least in Japan. I don't I don't know about the rest of Asia. I don't really travel in the rest of Asia. But from no, what you just said, no, no, I don't think so. Maybe some of the craft beer stores nearby. I don't even go there very often. But no, <laughs> I don't think so. When I think of famous, I think of like Dahine or some of the ESL people, like Celsius. No, I forget. Yeah. All right. Well, today's article that we're going to be discussing is called The Coming Educational Boom in Japan, Demographic and Other Indicators that Suggest an Increase in the Number of Adults Seeking Education. This was written in 1998 or 1999. Mm -hmm. if, if people would like to read this article, what's the best way for them to read it if they would like to read it before they listen to the podcast? I'm not really sure. It's, it's something I published a long time ago and it's just kind of interesting now looking back on the things that I mistakenly claimed then. But I think they'd probably have to do a search for Japanese society, which is Tsukuba University's publication at the time, and the coming educational boom. Or they can send me an email and I can send them a copy that way. Okay. I will I will put your email address in the show description. I think I found the article on Google Scholar. So mm -hmm. you can also you can also find that in Google Scholar. This is a fascinating read because you're writing something, you know, about 20 years ago, something that you're predicting. And it's just really interesting to go back and read it in the year 2020, where if I can just start with, with this, uh, the, the school that I teach, Kyushu Sangyo, Kyushu Sangyo University in Fukuoka, I think they have a, about a 99.9% .9 job placement rate right now. So essentially yeah, anyone yeah. who graduates is going to get a job in Japan. That's what every school is claiming. But from my own experience at universities that uh, weren't doing so well, they would consider part-time jobs as being employed. I see. Because they need to keep that figure high to keep students coming. So there's a little bit of um, fudging with those kinds of numbers. But you would say that that number is much higher now than it was in 1998 um, as far as job placement? I'm not sure. That's a good question. I would say it might might have been higher in 98 when the, the economy was re even stronger than now. You know what I mean? There might have been more placement in, in regular salaried positions in 98. That's a good question. I don't really know. Because – one thing in the in the paper and that a lot of us know is that the the population rates are declining 
Yes. One thing you did mention in the paper is there was a recession going on in Asia at the time. Now, were you talking about a recession in the early, mid, or, or late 90s? Um, a recession in terms of financial recession? I'm not sure. I think what I was talking about was uh, if you look at the population curve for Japan, there's like two bulges. Mm-hmm. Just like if you look at the one for the U.S., there's one big bulge, which is uh, the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. After people came back from World War II, they had lots of children. In Japan, there's like two bulges that are kind of not the same as the baby boomers. And now we're in the decreased side of children being born. It's probably going to continue for quite a while. So the number of 18-year-olds has been dropping since, oh, 2000, 2010 at a sharp rate. And so schools aren't getting enough students. So there's that kind of that kind of recession in terms of uh, of the number of youths that can go to schools. And a lot of schools are closing as a result. Okay, so the, the premise of the paper, you were doing kind of a comparative analysis between similar patterns that were happening in the United States in the 80s. Yes. And one thing that you mentioned was corporate structuring – went through a a big change in the 90s where they shifted from hierarchical structures to flatter structures and adult learning increased, adult enrollment in universities increased as this sort of changed from from those structures. And then from 1998, you were predicting a similar boom where older adults would return to university and you 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 were predicting that possibly that hierarchical Verse flatter structure would shift. For me, reading the article for the first time, my, my initial and, and for me living in Japan, my initial thoughts were the Japanese society, as far as a hierarchical, hierarchical structure, um, kept as a hierarchical structure. And maybe that's one reason why adults didn't return to university as you predicted. I think that's a pretty good assessment. I mean, I don't know the exact reason, and I've read some of the other. Uh, people doing research on adult education in Japan and people leaving companies to do retraining or to get new careers. That was kind of pretty common in America mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s when, you know, companies, there's a lot of transformation in the society in terms of what, you know, businesses, just like there is in Japan. But um, people wouldn't leave companies to get further degrees to try to get a better job as much as in the U.S., and I think it's because that hierarchical structure and still the idea that you belong to a company, any training you're going to get is going to come through the company, not from the outside. And I can see that in my own graduate classes in the faculty of commerce and business, business and commerce. In my graduate classes, 90% of the students are from China. The rest are from other countries. And maybe once in a while, there's just one student from Japan. So Japanese are not seeking that kind of additional training as much for job purposes. Sorry, I just had to close my window. I don't know if you, if you heard that, uh, that sound. <laughs> I thought um, you were grinding your teeth. Okay, that's good. <laughs> well, it, in another interesting reading this paper is I fall into the category of what was going on in the United States in the 80s. I, I yeah, got my no, undergraduate no. when I was 22. I... I, you know, I started a, a, a performance diploma, which is more like a performance degree, not really a master's degree. And then <clears throat> I returned and I got my master's degree in my late 30s. And now I'm going to be starting my PhD and I'm going to finish it in the 40s. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I, I sort of fit in, into that model. 
you do. And in the 1980s, it was really interesting. Just before the 1980s, you know, education specialists were looking at this big drop coming in, in youth. And they said, we're, we're going to only have half as many students as we did in the 70s because the kids are not as interested in going to college anymore. And there's going to be fewer of them. And it's going to be a big problem. But actually, just the opposite happened in the 80s. Uh, for junior colleges, the number of students doubled. And uh, for regular universities, I think it went up about 50%. So why was there this huge increase? And it was because basically adults going back to school to get further training. Maybe not in full-time courses so much, but more in like part-time uh, sort of, you know, getting licenses or those kind of programs. And uh, I can't remember exactly when, but the average age of the American college, and I've seen various numbers for it, but it's something like 27 the last time I checked. Now imagine that in Japan. Mm. What's the average age of a Japanese university student? Not 27. Right. It's probably about 20.5 or something. And the number of Japanese adults going to Japanese universities is very, very low. And I think one reason is because American universities really put a lot of money into doing um, part-time education where you can just take one course a semester, things like that. But Japanese universities are still oriented towards you know, full-time registration and a full-time student and not part-time students. I, I heard you talking a little bit about this topic at JALT this year or, or last year. Mm -hmm. And that was related to a, a book chapter you wrote, mm -hmm. correct? Um, what, was, what was that book chapter? Um, I think the one I talked about at, the, at JALT was the um, Chrysanthemum Maze, Working with Your Japanese Colleagues in and, universities. Yeah. And you were, you were talking about how you know, with the declining population, you know, a lot of people were worried that, that, you know, entrance rates would fall, but there was also the opposite effect where just because the, the population declines, maybe more people enter university. And so then the entrance rates actually stabilize. That's been partly true in Japan. The number of people going to university has increased but still pretty close to around 50%. It's not a huge increase. And I think the decline is bigger. And I can tell you the names of, of at least five universities that have gone out of business because they couldn't get enough students or others that are suffering. And I work for two of them. So all of the students are, are migrating towards the larger cities. They're moved, less been a trend you know, for the last uh, probably what, 50 years or so, people move to cities. Students want to go to schools in cities. And I think 100, 150 years ago, there's lots of little colleges out in the countryside. Mm -hmm. They were like mini versions of the big colleges in the cities. And they had the same departments. There's humanities and literature and science and whatever. But now everybody wants to go to the city. People are much more mobile Parents allow their kids to live in dorms or, or independent housing and going when they go to university. So these little country schools are going out of business. And this was a big thing in America. Uh, it has been it since you know at least the 80s when little country schools would go out of business unless they found some kind of super specialty. 
Like there's a school in New Hampshire that made connections with the uh, skiing resort market. Mm. And they had a hundred percent job placement because they made a major in skiing and skiing resort management and internships in these skiing resorts. And so their graduates were highly attractive to these businesses. Uh, sorry, I have, to, I have to apologize. I have to push pause real quick. This this door is, I need to close this door behind me. Just hold on, hold on one second. Okay. Okay, and then another thing in your article, you were predicting that possibly retirees would re-enter universities. And you predicted that in the year, what was the stat? In the year mm-hmm, 2015, mm-hmm. there would be 100 times more college-aged retirees than in 1993. And you were you were predicting that possibly they would come back to university. Yeah, yeah. The two big causes of adult education are people that are working, that want to get further training in their field to be better at it or to get a new job, people in the working place, and then retirees. And the, the two factors that are correlated with retirees going back to school are income and prior higher levels of education, like a college education. Well, income is actually people that have went to college have a higher income, so that might not even be real. It might just be the people that have gone to college, after they retire, they want to go back to college again. They want to study something again. And the last time I checked again, the average number of hours an American retiree was involved in some kind of study course was 16 hours a week in some kind of a program, whether it was at home, online, or taking classes or going to the culture center or whatever, which is a huge amount. So looking at how many Japanese with college degrees would be retiring at different years in the past and in the future, I thought would be a good predictor of older Japanese seeking further education. And let me tell your uh, audience about that. If you have a table or a desk in front of you and you move your hand over it about one centimeter, that's 12,000 Japanese that were retiring, uh, that had been to Japanese universities up until, what was it, 1990 or something like that? I can't see the chart here right now. But then if you look at how many Japanese are retiring now with college degrees, it's more than a million. And pretty soon, I think by 2015, it'll be two and a half million Japanese will reach retirement age that have college degrees every year. So we ex- that's one of the reasons I thought there would be a boom. There are so many Japanese leaving, you know, entering their careers and looking for things to do. So I thought they'd be going back to college, but just it hasn't happened. Well, let's let's start with your. I want to. I like to interweave people's backgrounds in, as you mentioned sure. in a, in a mm-hmm. comment that mm-hmm. that you found some of those some of the background conversations about people more interesting than the article themselves. I like to sort of interweave the two. I, I'd like to actually start from your PhD work and move backwards. Um, what, one thing that you there, – there was one line in your, your article that I really like. You, you said, change causes dislocation and insecurity even when change is for the better. Mm-hmm, now, mm-hmm. there's something going on right now in, in the world where people are drifting towards online education. And in your in your PhD – you said that you in an, in an email to me. You said that you 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 dealt with you dealt with adult learning, and you also 
you also were dealing with online teaching at that time in your PhD? I wasn't doing online teaching, but my PhD was um, looking at the needs of Japanese elementary school. This is just when Japan started having English classes in elementary schools. Mm -hmm. And there were 30,000 teachers that were assigned to take care of English programs in Japan with no experience in English education. They weren't trained in that area. So how can we get them trained really quickly mm. to at least have some idea of how to teach English so they don't just like imitate their high school teachers or whatever? And the, the best solution was online training. And so my dissertation was actually designing a prototype site to use for that kind of training that, you know, that, you know, what needs would, what, what we'd, I had to assess needs of elementary school teachers, their interests, how much time they had. And the traditional, you know, page by page or video by video online course wouldn't have worked for them because they're too busy. Mm. So that was where the online teaching connected to adult education for me. Now, what, what was that platform like? What, this was in the 90s? Uh, 2002. 2002. Okay, so, yeah. so, okay, so there was internet, there was computers. How was, how was the, the platform? Did it work? <laughs> Sorry, somebody's ringing my doorbell. No problem. You, <laughs> you need push pause. I'll for push pause, sure. They live in the real world. There's always kind of real life uh, in, what, uh, invasions into their study. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all, we're all kind of dealing with that yeah. right now. <laughs> yes, for sure. So how, was, how, was that, how did that platform work? You set up an online teacher training program. How many teachers did you know join this program? Did was it successful? The dissertation was more or less needs assessment and just designing a platform that would work for training teachers. We never actually made it beyond just uh, some basics for the paper, so we never really did online training. I, I'd wish it had been possible, but the dissertation was more or less just to. Prom or you know, to design a prototype website that would do that. Wow. Well, that must have been interesting because there there wasn't a lot of that back then. That was sort of the beginning of the internet. Uh, I wouldn't say the beginning of the internet in 2002, but in 2004. But yeah, online education was still pretty primitive at that time. It was mainly people just taking their classroom courses of readings and whatnot and and putting them in lesson-by-lesson lesson design online. And we knew that wouldn't work with teachers. Teachers, and you know, as part of adult education theory too, adults are trying to solve the problems of their life. And that's why they're not like regular college students. They're trying to solve things, to get better at things. And so the teacher can't really decide what you have to learn and take you through this step by step. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's what happened in America in the 1980s, which caused the, the rise of the field of adult education. Adults started coming into American teachers' classes and they would just teach them the way the same the same way they taught you know twenty year old kids, which is learn this. There's a test. You have to learn this. There's a test. And the adult dropout rate was horrible. It was like something like fifty percent in some cases. And it's because that style of education didn't fit them, because they're seeking education to solve some problems of life or to get better at something. And of course, the teacher doesn't always know what that is. So that led to a revolution in in pedagogy, de designing an entirely new pedagogy that fits people that are living in the real world. Is that and that's called, why adult education is different. 
from regular pedagogy, children's education. Now, I don't know how to pronounce this word, A-N-D-R-A-G-O-G-Y. That's right, andragogy. Andragogy. Yeah. That's the pedagogy for teaching adult learners? That's what Malcolm Knowles termed it, and still people use that a lot, but yeah. And basically, I would say the key characteristics are that – Adults are not dependent learners. They're self-directed. They know what they want to study, what they want to learn generally. And they want to pursue topics that they're interested in. They're much more life-centered and problem-centered. Rather than just being lectured, they need discussion. And discussion helps them connect the new ideas that they hear in the classroom to their real lives. So discussion components are really important for adults, and which learned, is why I keep them, I put them in my presentations too. So you learned about some of this in your master's. You you got a master's in education uh, from George Peabody College of Teachers, now a part of Vanderbilt University. You said some of the classes were steeped in educational humanism. Yes, yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you probably heard about open schools where the – School just provides resources and the kids study whatever they want. You know, that means like going outside and walking around in the forest next door. Um, That's sort of educational humanism. The people learn what they need to learn best when they're not being forced to learn it. Mm. And it's just like completely opposite here in Japan where everything's sort of set by patterns and teaching discipline and compliance is more the, the center of education. So I just kind of forgot about that for 30 years or so until I got back into adult education and I saw that emerging again. Adults generally don't like lectures unless the lectures on something they know almost nothing about. Hmm. They tend to prefer more of a co- uh, teaching style like a coach, like a dissertation advisor uh, in a university rather than Somebody that's telling them what to read, what to write, and you know all the time. They kind of very controlling, teacher centered approach. Well, I I can speak for that as well because you know I you know I was teaching full time and I thought I needed some more training, so I went back and got a master's, and now I'm starting the PhD, and I can apply it while I'm working full time. That's really attractive to me. When I, when I graduated yeah, yeah. university, I never foresaw going back. Uh, like you said, that model where you go back and sit in class and you sort of absorb knowledge and, you know, the teacher transmit knowledge to, in that way. I, I, I never could see myself going back. So if I was a 27, 28-year-old going back to the formal university, I think I would I would be, you know. You'd love it re- because you know what the real world is and you have something you could take that education and apply it to. So is, is, don't you think it's a waste that we have kids go to college when they're between 18 and 22? We've got to send them out to the world to work a little bit first. Well, that was in one of your podcasts, by the way. Somebody else said that. I think, yeah, it was Chris, I think Chris was talking about Chris yeah. Said that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have certain countries like you know Israel or Korea, where you have the compulsory military. Yeah. And most of the you know the the populations that you know the college age is between twenty two and twenty nine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe even maybe even a bit older. Most I know some people that after they leave the Israel army they just travel around the world for two or three years to try to forget what it was like being in the military. And then they come back and then they, they, you know, do a, some work in Israel and then they go back to university. So I, yeah. I would say that the, the, the older populations are more in those countries where you have the compulsory military service. 
And I'll bet even amongst your listeners out there, there's lots of them that didn't go from high school to college to graduate school and then start working. They maybe started working first, then went to graduate school or something. And probably they really enjoyed their graduate studies after they'd had some experience in the real world. Definitely. So that's the kind of, that's the orientation of adult education that, you know, people with, that are independent with their own needs don't or tend not to like the traditional educational approaches. And I have a question for you, Jonathan. Have you noticed that in Japanese universities as well? Some very dependent teacher-directed learners at one age that become sort of independent, self-directed learners by year four. That's hard for me to say because I only teach first and second years. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, I, I would say, you know, my experience in, uh, in other teaching jobs, I have noticed mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. teaching music, um, but I, I, haven't, I haven't had that experience so much. Um, I would say, again, I'm kind of late. I'm a little bit late to the game of, of English teaching mm-hmm. uh, professionally. So right now I'm teaching basically first and second year compulsory English classes. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah. A little bit related to your three L's you called. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> the low ability, low confidence, low motivation. You said you spent much of your career. I think Simon talked about it as well. Yes. Um, I would say a lot of my students would fit into that category. Yeah, yeah. I think most people don't realize, I mean, here in Japan at least, or any, everywhere, that I think most Japanese students are sort of heading in that direction. Mm. There's a lot of universities with students that just aren't very serious about school and certainly not serious about learning English. But but to, to reverse your question, what I, I, I assume you found that a change. You teach, are you able to follow and track people's progress from year one to year four at your university? Yeah, I think most teachers that have been in the game as long as I have will say that first-year students are completely dependent. Mm-hmm. You tell them, okay, your homework is to write a paper on blah, blah, blah. And they'll call you, they'll get all nervous and come up afterwards and say, B5 or A4. Well, you could decide. Uh, every other line or every line, does this be in pen or pencil? Can I use a computer? They're very, very dependent on the teacher because they're used to that from high school. Mm. And they don't do much other than you tell them they have to do. But by fourth year, students are saying, oh, this topic's not very interesting for us or for me. Can we study something else? And they're much more independent. I've had students, even at Kansai University, which is a pretty high-level university, in the fourth year, they'll, start, they'll, they'll disappear from class for a month because they decide to go abroad for a while and study English there. Well, I'm the kind of person I'll give them credit for that, but that seems to be more and more common with fourth-year students, especially after they get their job. They feel like going to school is like an option. Hmm. But, yeah, they're much more independent, much more demanding of accountability by the teacher, whether what we're teaching them is useful for them or not. That's interesting. I'm, I'm in a very strange spot right now in in mm-hmm. my learning where i i would fit into the category of what you said before of the adult learner who i'm trying mm-hmm. to apply mm-hmm. it to my job i'm i'm pursuing something i'm really interested in um i i really 
would avoid lectures unless it, it really is something I don't know much about. Like you said, mm -hmm. I, I am reaching a bit of a problem though with getting feedback from my supervisor at times, because I'm kind of new to psychology, I'll, I'll get feedback where the, the paper is just ripped to shreds. I mean, there's a thousand comments. Mm -hmm. It's hard mm -hmm. to get my mind around. And then I'll even have a, a, a zoom meeting. Cause I'm, I'm studying online. My, my advisors are in at Macquarie university. And sometimes even when they try to break it down for me, it's still difficult for me to understand. And I actually am grasping for more teacher directed stuff for things I don't understand. Yeah. Well, that's what Malcolm Knowles is probably the, the greatest single contributor to the adult education theory. And first he said, well, adults don't like lectures. They like discussions. But then he turned around and said, no, that's not true. When it comes to like a completely new topic, they just want to be taught. They want to be lectured in that particular area because they need to absorb that information. And a discussion is just like wasted time for them. So, yeah, I understand. And I heard you talking about your um, your research on classroom and language anxiety and your, your research projects and your difficulties um, getting – was it you that had the difficulty getting the ethics, IRB, was it? The yeah, ethics, the ethics approval, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it sounded hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I, I also heard you talking about okay. well, we can't do this in psychology. No, we can't test for two different things in psychology because there's a very strong methodology in one direction. And I thought you were really quite aware or understanding of some of the uh, disciplines of your of your discipline in terms of the research area. Well, I'm trying. I'm just. Uh... I'm sort of, I'm, I mean, I'm digging into the literature and trying to play catch up, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. to speak. But it's, it's tough because I, yeah, I'm, I, I'm trying, yeah, I, I'm, I'm facing both, both things with the advisor because they're, you know, I think my, my, my main advisor is the editor of the Australian Psychology Journal, and so it's in some ways I'm, I'm really grateful. By the end of it, I'm sure I'll be a good writer. But you're I, you're at well, Quarry, is that right? You're doing a yeah. Quarry distance program. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, but as I'm going through the process, it is it's sometimes I actually sometimes get anxious opening the email when I'm going to get the feedback because I know the paper is going to be ripped to shreds, and it's uh it's it's I don't know. Did you find that when you were doing your your PhD that you got anxiety when you received <sighs> feedback from your your advisors? I had good advisors. I took a long time choosing my advisors. Um, we had these like – this is part of the adult education program I went to. It was made for adults. It was actually designed by Malcolm Knowles, one of the – you know, the person I said was a leader in the field. And we there would be these like, long sessions where you'd have to talk to every possible advisor and catch their orientation. Then you choose one. It wasn't just like you had to just kind of choose and ask somebody's permission so I found somebody that fit me really well, and it was great. Uh, she guided me but didn't try to tell me how to do her discipline because I was studying something that she wasn't that familiar with, mm. English education in Japan. But I did have that point where I was ready to drop out of my doctoral program. After I got my 600-page dissertation done, it was accepted by her and the other 600? advisors. About 600 pages. About 300 pages were uh, appendixes. Okay. And 
the format committee. I had to have it on U.S. paper. I could only have tables on one page. They weren't allowed to run over to the next page. The margins had to be exactly one inch. So to get U.S. letter paper in Japan, I had to travel to America, buy it, and I had to, I had to have 600 pages, right, to get my oh, yeah. dissertation printed out. I'd bring it back. I'd print it out. MS Word somehow didn't keep the one-inch margin rule. Even I said one inches, and oh, oh tables would flow over to the next page. There was – for almost a year, I was just trying to get the format right, and it was just so frustrating. I just got to the point – well, the solution I found was I hired somebody in Canada to do it for me. Oh, nice. <laughs> and for the 400 bucks, it was certainly worth it. That's the hardest part I find about applying for Kikenny in these things, the formatting. You have yeah, to yeah. – it's just so It's just so difficult. You'd think we'd be at a spot nowadays where the formatting would be easier. It's still difficult, I would it's say. It's still difficult, yeah. It's still, it's still very difficult. I mean, but as far as the advisor, I, I, I want someone who's tough on me. I actually have two advisors, yeah. uh, one who's more psych based and one who's more stats based because I'm introducing this, you know, the, this tool using Fitbits, but I also have a mm -hmm. clinical psychologist. So the clinical psychologist is, is it, it's almost, I'm in like the bowling, you know, you know, the, the bowling for kids where you, where you, you cover up the gutters. I feel yeah. like she's keeping me from going into the gutters in the psychology. <laughs> so I'm kind of bouncing back and forth and eventually I'll find the center. I think, yeah, after a few years. It's just, it, it's, it's tough. I mean, she's being really hard on me and I really appreciate that. Um, cause I think if a teacher's too, too nice, it's, uh, you know, you might, you might get a yes. bit, uh, you might, you might go out in the world with too much confidence, I would say. Um, but if you have a teacher who's really strict, who's kind of keeping you in line and I think they understand I'm new to psychology. Um, but there, I, I think it's just, that's her way. Uh, I don't think it's anything personal. And I think because she's used to being an editor, it's a, I think it's a problem that I have. I have to deal with it. I have to figure out how to sift through all of these comments and, and reor and actually I'm having trouble writing an essay. That's the, that's the thing I'm having the most trouble. My, my thesis intro literature review, that's fine. It's very structured, mm -hmm. but I think I'm, and they're telling me, cause I like to make subtitles or chapter titles or like make section. That's another reason I really liked your paper. It was 23 pages and it, uh, it flowed so well. I think the, the feedback they're giving, you do have these, you know, these subtitles and section titles, but it does flow really well from, from paragraph to paragraph. And I think with the essay, the problem that I'm having writing an essay right now is that I just, I, I'm trying to keep these subtitles and it's not really flowing uh, very well. It, it's this, this, this paper that, that you wrote, let me, let me, let me reset here for the audience. The, the coming educational boom in Japan demographic and other indicators that suggest an increase in the number of adults seeking education. Um, it's, it's 23 pages, but it flows so well. I mean, this is the type of, uh, I, I hope I can, I can become a writer like this. It's easy to read flows. Well, did, Oh, thank did, you. I, I'm glad to hear one part of it's good because the predictions were just completely wrong. <laughs> well, let's get, let's, well, let's get back into that. So why, yeah. what, what were your predictions again, and why well, were they wrong? Before we get to that, yeah. can I tell you something about how an adult education doctoral program, the one that I went to, solved that problem of how hard it is to write a dissertation? I mean, it is a special format. There's all these rules that don't make sense. It's not made for readability. It's more like you're like making a reference paper or something. Hmm. 
So the program I went to required us to do four mini dissertations, which they called practicums, one using experimental research, one using qualitative research, blah, blah, blah. We had to do four of these like 30 to 100 page mini dissertations using the same format we would use in our real dissertation before we could start our dissertation. Mm. So once we got to the dissertation part of it, the format or what goes, how to put it together was already solved for us. We already really practiced in that. We could concentrate on the content. And I think that's the big problem for a lot of people in doctoral programs. They don't know how to do the format and they get lost in that because they've never done it before. And that's why I think it's something like a third of the people that enter doctoral programs drop out when they get to the dissertation stage. Well, th it's funny because this this essay I'm having trouble with. It's a they they say no more than thirty five hundred words. They they want it between three thousand hmm. and thirty five hundred words. They want you to find something that's outside your focus of the thesis, um, and they want you to compare and contrast you know different opinions in the field, find the gaps, limitations, and it's just it's just I don't know. It's just, it's br it's brutal. It's hmm. it's hmm. really hmm. I have to find something. So well, the the topic I chose was. Is heart rate a valid measurement of test anxiety, mm -hmm. which is a little mm -hmm. bit outside my focus. But then I had to learn everything about test anxiety. And then I have to, I, well, I felt I did. And then I gave it to my advisors and they said, well, you don't need to know everything about everything. Maybe you need to, your, your focus is too broad and you need to, you know, make your, tighten your focus and just keep it, you know, and then things you need to reference, you need to reference in this way, this way, this way. But honestly, I'm still having trouble breaking down their feedback, I, the, basically, I, from what I'm, what I'm gathering is they want me to totally redo the paper, just totally rework it. Um, it, it look, from their point of view, it looked more like a literature review and not in, in a comparative analysis. Mm -hmm. But because mm -hmm. I'm so new to the field, I find it hard to learn about the field at the same time and compare and contrast and find the gaps. It, it seems a bit overwhelming. This, this 33,000 to three, three, you know, 3,500 word essays, the thing that's like, causing me the most stress. And it's only like 10%. It's not really a grade issue. The thesis is 90% of the grade. I'm actually happy with where the thesis is, but I'd like to kind of get over this hurdle and again, get to the point where I could write a paper like this, which you wrote in 1999, which is 23 pages. And it just, it, 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 it I don't know. It's just the style of it is, is kind of where I'm, I'm not, at, I'm not at that point yet where I can go through the topics and know when to not give too much information and know when to give information and keep it sort of concise. And um, it's a really good read. I, I would recommend anybody, I think anyone would enjoy reading it, but especially someone who maybe is in my shoes, who's, who's sort of starting out a PhD on how to write a, a very nice essay. Um, was it you that said that you go for walks? That was Simon. Was Simon? Simon said that. Yeah, you know, do what Simon does, because sometimes when you can't get your ideas out on paper in a understandable way it's because you're doing too much hmm. going out for a walk sometimes and sleeping on it those sort of things let you sort of refine it there's, there's a lot of times i've written papers that were really terse and then a month later i'd redo them or start again and it just seemed to like flow into something that was much more readable or meaningful or understandable so i think those walks and letting your brain kind of arrange things helps quite a bit rather than being just sort of doing your writing from just your notes directly. All right. Well, let's, let's jump back into the, okay. the mm -hmm. paper. Um, so 1999, you were, you're predicting a boom 
and it it didn't happen. So can you just for the audience out there, can you can you summarize the prediction in 1999 and maybe give your reasons why you think it didn't happen? Well, basically it was that um the two streams for adults going back to school, one is that um again, people in the workplace that are seeking further training to keep their jobs or get better jobs or whatever. And at that time, Japanese companies were starting to go through the uh, uh, bubble crisis and things like that. So there's all kinds of nestora was beginning at that time, that's restructuring. And so there's a lot of upheaval in the workplace. So we thought a lot of people would be seeking further training in Japanese colleges to sort of uh, ameliorate the, the threats of the workplace. And it didn't seem to happen. And I'll get into that why maybe later. And then the other thing was, again, as I said, the number of retiring adults that had college education was just shooting up really, really quickly um, after and during this millennium. As we expected, those people would be seeking further education. And there were some indications there was like a a university that opened just for adults in Osaka, another one in Tokyo, uh, the community centers where people would go to take special classes were getting more and more popular. But they never really became like the ones in the U.S. that had all kinds of really practical classes. And we're still not really sure why the adult education boom didn't happen in Japan. And Japanese that had been doing research in that area wrote about that too – and they say things that, well, the education, the person in charge of the culture centers was, you know, just oriented towards offering courses like in pottery or things like that, not real things that adults need. Like, um, for example, a school in Georgia had a course called Managing Finances as a Survivor, which is mainly made for older women whose Husbands took care of all the money, but then they died and they had no idea what to do. There's one course called Getting a Divorce Without a Lawyer. Hmm. We kind of laugh at that, but for somebody that needs that kind of education, you know, somebody's in a really difficult situation like that, that could have been a godsend. You know, courses on car repair and other kind of very practical things. Well, tying into that, there, there, there's something else you mentioned in the article that you said educational levels grew in America due to the advent of television. I was I was really surprised by that. Yeah. Why 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 cuz I Isn't would that say surprising? I imagine, you know, you know, just losers sitting in their basement watching MTV all day. Maybe that's not maybe that wasn't your point. Was your, was your point that it was a technological thing that there was more program available? What was the tie-in between the advent of television and the increase of educational levels? Just that when television became available, just like now, like the internet, the internet's our main source of education these days. But if you think about it, for people that were at home, television gave them pictures of the world and other animals, things that you couldn't really get in a book or a magazine. Uh, it brought them interesting topics one after another. It gave them the constant language input. So television was sort of the big unifier and the big educator. We tend not to think about that. But if you really look at the shows that kids see, there's all this like moral training going on mm -hmm. and how to do things in life. And 
even the dramas that people watch, there's been some research in brain studies on how people that have more reading experience in fiction tend to be able better able to deal with real life social situations better. Hmm. Um, it's like a story is a training manual for the real world. Oh, another doorbell. All right, I'll push pause. Phone's <laughs> on. You got to put up the Japanese sign with the tiding. What is it? Do not enter. Yeah, I should have put a. Yeah, don't ring the bell. We, I guess we're an Amazon family. Well, my wife loves shopping online, you know. So, well, with the with the television, and now with this online. Well, tying into the yeah again, I just want to go back to that 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 thing that you said. Change causes dislocation and insecurity, even when change is for the better. Yeah. Now this 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 outlier as far as this pandemic and everyone going online. Yes. Is yes, this, this going is. to cause a boom in education? Because from because I you know I was really happy to do my online degree. Um, my my school was in America, the master's degree, and then I and I I really wanted to do the same thing. So I found it. I found a program. Now technically, I'm a domestic student in Australia, but I'm conducting my research outside of Australia. So I was looking for something similar where I continue I could continue to work full time. And I could do all my classwork online. I was meeting with my professors on Zoom long before this pandemic was happening. Yes. I feel like I've been really used to this style. Um, I feel like maybe schools are going to maybe try to adapt or accommodate to students that want to study online more. Is this going to cause a boom? I couldn't agree with you more. I think, you know, my my education, my doctoral education was kind of semi-distance. I mean, I never lived on campus. I just have to fly to these like two-week times together with the teachers every summer. But I think this pandemic, schools are going online. People are starting online courses. We're going to see a lot more online education in the future. And you and I and maybe some other people in Japan will be like pioneers in getting degrees online because I think that's going to be a big thing now that it's become required for almost every school. Even my my children in the third and sixth grade are using Zoom every day to go to their classes here in Kyoto. Mm. So I think this is going to become more widely known. People are going to like it better. And if they take a good course, they're going to see that a good online course is better than a face-to-face course in most cases. Now, If the teacher sets it up right. Talk about your relationship with Harvard and the the Harvard online program. Um, Tracy Tokuhama Espinosa Tokuhama Tokuhama Espinosa teaches a course called the Neuroscience of Learning. It's in the mind brain education area. And I'd met her once at a conference, and she's sort of a leader in this field of uh, bringing brain sciences into education. She taught this course, and I was signing up for it because I was on sabbatical. And she didn't know it. I'd signed up as a student, but she asked me if I'd be a teaching assistant, what they call a teaching fellow, mm. last spring. And it was one of the hardest jobs I've ever done. I was working 50 hours a week on that course. But, uh, you know, the way she set up was so good, so interactive. There was so much work, but it was, you know, it was just a great example of using Canvas and Zoom to set up an online course in a way that there's 
as much interaction as there is in study. Now, I, I was looking on the Harvard online. There, you can take classes at Harvard online for free. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if yeah. people know that. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, in the last uh, think tanks that we sent out, there was um, – I put in a little blurb about that, some Harvard courses, and some are free. Yeah, I, I guess I should I should mention um, – and maybe it was unfair. I, I – you know, Dr. Kelly is is very well known as far as the brain neuroscience research. You're you're the head of the 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 special interest group, the the mind brain education. I think you're very well known in that area. So I actually chose a paper way outside of that field yeah, because I you. thought it, I thought it'd be interesting <laughs> for the people that already know you to hear you talk about uh, something that you know is outside. But you're you're really quite well known. In, in, in this area and the, the think tank you mentioned for people that don't know what, what's that? Um, we started producing the mind brain education, uh, SIG and Carolyn Hanley, by the way, is a coordinator. Now I'm just kind of a assistant coordinator. So I could shift over to making this monthly publication called the mind brain ed think tanks that connect brain sciences, especially neuroscience whenever possible to language teaching. Because so much of the training we get in traditional programs has almost no mention of brain science at all. But there's so many interesting things being found out about how the brain learns or how the brain processes language. Now this... So we're trying to provide that to teachers in a readable way, not academic journal, you know, in readable articles. When did you start this? Um, actually, we've just this kind of new version where we go like every month we've just been doing it for two years. It seems, it seems the response has been great. You have readers from all around the world. How did they hear, yeah, we, how did they hear about it? Just, just because they follow never you advertise, but people like, uh, that are writing for it or working for it, like, uh, Amanda Gillis for and, um, Mark Helgeson and take around these signup sheets and they'd pass them around yeah, would you like to know how you know some stuff about how emotion, the neuroscience of emotion, is connected to language teaching? People sign up for it because it's free, and just give us their email address. And so we went from 144 subscribers, which were just the BrainSig members in the beginning, up to a thousand in about a year and a half. Wow, that's incredible. It's pretty good. It's not huge, but it's. And that lets us meet other people that are interested in this topic and will be writing for us. Our second biggest group is in Australia. Hmm. We have a lot of people in Australia that are interested. Well, I'm I'm on the the office the the BrainSig officer email list. I'm thankful to be, even though I I'm, I don't contribute so often. But I see people writing in from all over the world, and I think mm -hmm. a lot of it was the issue coming up with the conference that was going to happen. You were set to have a joint conference with TESOL in Kyoto. Is that correct? Yeah. TESOL, you know, they've, they're the big conference. They're, they're the big organization for language teachers. And they came to JOLT and said, let's do a conference together in Japan, which has never been done before. And JOLT said, well, let's get the brain sick, see if they'd like to do this. Why is that? Why did they choose you? I don't know. I think. Because I always say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a great opportunity. But I don't know what, why they asked us, but we just jumped right into it. And 
we would have had a great conference this June, but unfortunately we have to postpone it a year. And this, this conference, how, like from how many different countries of, of people were represented? Were there people coming from all over the world? Uh, TESOL was paying for three of the four plenaries mm-hmm. and we have one of our own people, Stephen Ryan, M Ryan as another plenary, but, um, they told us to get people from different countries as much as possible. We got two from America and one from Australia for the TESOL would bring over for this conference. But people have been signing up from India, Indonesia, America. Just in the couple weeks that we had this advertised on the TESOL site and our own site in Japan, we had applicants from all over the world. I mean, not many, just like 20, but they're really from different areas. So that's going to be in 2021. We will have an event on June 20th, which is the same day as the JALT PANSIG conference. So we're actually going to integrate our little event with the PANSIG conference. It'll be a free 90-minute workshop on uh, June 20th, Saturday morning. Anybody can come and uh, meet these plenaries from abroad, talking about their topics and discussing them with the audience. And are you uh, are you familiar with Robert Murphy? Oh yes. Okay. Robert so and I are old old allies in the seeking the brain stuff, and and Robert really took the lead in getting this going in Japan by setting up Fab conferences, first annual Brain Day. Well, this this is another reason why the podcast is interesting is because Chris is actually going to be interviewing Robert Murphy. Good, good, good. Um, and. I, I, I don't personally know Robert Murphy, but I know that he's well-known, and I see him yeah, on some yeah, of yeah. the emails. So that, I thought that was interesting. That It's not that Chris knew that I knew of Robert Murphy, but he, he knows of Robert Murphy. Yeah. And so he's going to be interviewing uh, Robert Murphy at some point too. So Robert Murphy studied at Harvard? Uh, he studied – I think the most significant course he took was a Harvard course. But his um, master's, I think, was Birmingham, and his doctorate was at uh, Nottingham. Because I saw his mentor ju- just passed away, and that was a professor yeah. at Harvard. And this was a course that he took at Harvard. I, actually, this, I think it was the same course that I was a teaching fellow in, but that, that time with a different teacher. But lots of kind of famous people in the mind, brain, and education field took Kurt Fisher's course mm-hmm. and were deeply moved by him. And I've read some of his work and I wasn't so – he's not that famous in the field, but he seems to have been a really great teacher that moved people in deep ways. Well, that, I was surprised by – when I went to the Brain Sig party last year at JALT because that was my mm-hmm. first time at JALT and I wanted to meet the, the Sig people. And there was a few people talking about that course quite emotionally about how uh, this course uh. changed my life and – yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know what they were talking about, really. But there was a few people that did seem quite emotional about that course, and I guess it's because of this particular person and his influence on them. I would say probably not that particular, but that was for Robert. Mm-hmm. But it was Tracy Tokohama Espinosa that uh, Tom Gorham, um, John Duplass, Jonathan Saden. I'm not sure. He Maybe he didn't take her course, but some other people took her course. It was probably Tom Gorham and John Duplass were talking about that. 
And her course is also just really fantastic. And it's offered every spring and sometimes fall too. So I recommend anybody that really wants to have a intensive, hardworking, but life-changing online course from here in Japan to sign up for Tracy's. Well, maybe I can put that link in the show description. Sure. Um, and because I actually don't know that link. I did look on the Harvard online courses. There are a variety of courses that are free and some that are quite reasonable, like $40 or something. Yeah. So Well, for that then, I'd just like to tell your readers, just this is easy to remember, mind, brain, ed, as one word, dot org. Type that in. You go to our website where you have the archives of all the issues of the think tanks. And the one for last month, which was um, April 1st, 2020, in case people are listening to this 10 years from now, <laughs> the one for this month was on professional development. And it mentioned a couple courses that are available in Asia to learn more about brain sciences and teaching, including those free Harvard courses. Cool. All right. Well, we're coming up toward, towards an hour, so I mean, we could we could go on much more. Um, if people want to contact you, they they can they can contact you via email. Is that okay? I'll put your your email. It's, I'd be glad to glad to have them join. Yeah. And we should um we should start another podcast about Civil War. Thank you for sending <laughs> me those Civil War books. I appreciate that. That was yeah, so nice you. of you. <laughs> thank you. It's it's been my passion. It still is. I don't read fiction. I don't read in academic papers in my field. I just read history books. Yeah. One of my favorite classes at Virginia Tech was a Civil War history book. Uh, uh -huh. Sorry, his, his Civil War history class and uh, his, his his novel um, about Stonewall Jackson. Oh, yeah. His lectures were story time, If you're what you were talking about before. Um, incre incredible, incredible. He brought those, those the Civil War to life. So I'll never, never forget that class. That was awesome. Mm -hmm. I need to jump into those books that you sent. I haven't, I haven't had time to do like uh, reading for enjoyment recently. I feel you've I, been producing these wonderful podcasts. I've I've heard every one so far, and uh, for me, I would say anybody that's a teacher in Asia, especially in Japan, a language teacher, listen to these podcasts because, again, it, it's much closer to home to hear people. They're maybe not academic experts in a particular research area as much as they are teachers that are also academic experts in a particular research area talk about their lives and their studies and how it all fits together. It's very, very life-centered. I like that. Well, I appreciate that. If people want to reach out to the show, there's an email address, lost in citations. Wait, why, why do I keep stumbling on that? There's an email address. <laughs> Lost in citations at gmail.com. There's a Facebook page with the same name. Please share the, the show. Thank you for doing that, Curtis. Uh, you shared the, the page. Please like the page. You can also uh, subscribe on iTunes. Please leave us a five-star rating and a favorable review. And maybe the best way to spread the word is just tell your friends or, or colleagues if you like, like a show. Even if there's a particular episode that you like, uh, maybe recommend that to, to a friend or a colleague. And uh, again, th thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kelly. I really appreciate you coming on today's episode. Well, thank you very much. And I'll leave you with uh, Stonewall Jackson's last words that might fit us too. I'll see you on the other side of the river. <laughs>